True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. The girl arrives home to an empty house. She takes the washing down and then goes inside. It's the last time she's ever seen. Two weeks later, another member of her household disappears and the mystery only deepens. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to Episode 64, The Disappearance of Legendre de Brain. This episode is sponsored by Dialabed. I cannot tell you how many people have said that the podcast is like a sleep aid for them. Apparently it's not that I'm boring, but rather that I allegedly have a soothing voice. So if you're prone to listening to the podcast while you drift off into dreamland, you probably want to make sure that your bed is supporting a great night's sleep too. It's easy to forget about the little things, that insulate us from all the craziness that goes on in the world. But there's a place that's your sanctuary, a place that makes you feel all safe and snuggled up, your bed. But it's not just a bed to you, is it? Beds aren't just a place we open our eyes every day. Beds are more than stitching and cushioning and coil springs. Beds are life and love. Dialabed understands the importance of comfort and makes every single bed with something special. Dialabed makes beds for rest and all the rest. Upgrade your bed today by visiting a Dialabed store or shopping online at dialabed.co.za. A huge thank you to Dialabed for supporting True Crime South Africa. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank our new Patreon supporters. A huge thank you goes out to Sandy, Gareth Pinar, and Nikita McLennan for your support on Patreon. Thank you so much, everyone. Your support really does make a huge difference. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave a link in the show notes. There are now additional ways that you can support the show, with two online businesses providing 10% discounts when you use the code TCSA10 at checkout. You can get your health and beauty needs at King Online, and you can get all your printing requirements designed, printed and delivered by PrintCrowd. You can also help to support me as an individual creator by checking out the companion podcast I created with Showmax for the Devil's Dorp documentary, or by purchasing the Cougarsdorp Cult Killings audiobook on Audible, Google Play Books, or Apple Books. As always, any form of support is greatly appreciated, and it doesn't have to be financial. Sharing of episodes, inviting your friends and family to listen, and interacting on social media all go a long way to keeping the show growing and improving. You can also leave a review on the podcast app you use to listen. If your podcast platform does not have that option, a Google or Facebook review is equally helpful. Today's episode focuses on a missing person case. I realized that I hadn't done a missing persons case in a while, 
And I picked this one because it not only involves a teenager, but also has a ton of twists and turns. I first came across this case on the television program Firmus, which is currently in its second season. This case is covered in the first season, and I was lucky enough to be able to collaborate with the producers on some of the second season episodes and provide suggestions for cases. If you haven't yet watched the first or second seasons, I suggest you do so on either the Showmax app or via TV every Thursday. When Le Genre's case was screened, something happened that would prove the power of the true crime genre and how it can and should be something far more than just a form of entertainment. I'd like to say up front that my portrayal of the involvement of anyone mentioned in this episode is only a combination of the information available in the public domain and my own opinions. All persons of interest remain innocent until proven guilty in a court of law, and I do not encourage social media witch hunts or unfounded accusations being made against anyone. It is never, ever my intention to cast aspersions of guilt on any person. I'm here to tell Legendre's story, and any parties mentioned are simply part of her story. I understand that listeners will always reach their own conclusions after listening to the available evidence, but I do encourage everyone to do so responsibly, and always with Legendre's best interests in mind. In researching this episode, I used the episode of Firmus, off-air conversations with members of Legendre's family, and a few media articles that are available about the case. So let's get into episode 64, The Disappearance of Legendre de Brain. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counseling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Legendre was born to her parents, Warren and Catherine, on the 10th of May 1999. By then, her parents already had a son, Cheslin, who would be Legendre's big brother. Warren and Catherine would divorce in 2003, but the children maintained a strong relationship with their father, who would go on to remarry. Catherine and the children lived on the Weinberg military base, where Catherine worked as a nurse for the National Defence Force. Legendre strikes me as a child who had a very close circle of friends. Her best friend, Kaylin, lived next door to the Debrains, and the girls spent much of their free time together. In 2003, after her divorce, Catherine reconnected with an old school friend, James Jonas, and the pair started to date. In 2006, James moved into the Weinberg home. With the children still being quite young at that time, Catherine says that James was good with them, and he and Legendre spent a good amount of time together, as James worked for himself. As far as discipline went, Catherine would say that when the children were young, James had no problem setting them straight in the moments if they misbehaved. But as the children grew older, he chose to rather tell their mother if he disagreed with something they'd done, and then she would have to approach the children about it. 
Both Catherine and the children were confused about this change, and Legendre told her mother that she felt James was snitching behind her back, rather than just dealing directly with her as he had always done. Catherine estimates that in the six months or so before her daughter would disappear, Legendre and James' relationship had started to become strained. Catherine describes her own relationship with her daughter as very close. She says that Legendre was her gossip buddy, and the girls struggled to keep a secret from her mother. She also describes her daughter as outspoken, and says that, especially when she became a teenager, whenever they disagree, she would ask her daughter why she just doesn't listen to her, and Legendre would always reply, well, I'm my mother's daughter, aren't I? As Catherine describes these interactions on the episode of Famous, you can almost see her transported to these moments. It's something I see in the family of missing people quite a lot when they talk about their missing loved one. There's almost this veil of sadness that coats them when they speak about the events around the actual disappearance. But when they start to talk about who their loved ones were and share memories, that veil lifts slightly and you get a glimpse of who that person would be if they had not had to live with the ambiguous loss of grieving for a vanished person. And this is why I encourage family members who are comfortable being recorded for the podcast to just talk about their memories of the missing person. Because I can get details about their disappearance from many sources, but there are only certain people that can lift that veil and let us peer into the alternate existence where what could have been exists as reality. For Legendre de Brain, what could have been included her being either a fashion designer or a nurse like her mom. These are the occupations she'd mentioned as being of interest to her. A doctor was a stretch too far, Catherine says, for her daughter, who could not imagine having to perform surgery on someone. Legendre's best friend, Kaylin, describes her as very bubbly and always the leader in any situation. She says that whenever they would have issues with their parents, and Kaylin would joke that they should just run away together, Legendre would always be the voice of reason telling Kaylin that they were just kids and how would they survive. Kaylin says that Legendre grounded her, and her logical thinking was always the base of their friendship. In mid-2014, something strange started to happen to Legendre. She started to receive anonymous letters addressed to her. The letters spoke of the writer's admiration for Legendre and complimented her physical appearance. The letters also contained references to Legendre's personal life that only someone close to her would have known. The young girl kept these letters to herself initially, and I can actually fully understand this. It seems like the type of secrets a teenager would like to keep, and she didn't feel weird about it at the start. She initially thought that the anonymous sender must be one of her male school friends who was too shy to tell her that they liked her to her face. Legendre was very curious to find out who the sender might be, so when one of the letters suggested a meet-up in a nearby park at night, 
she decided to go and solve the mystery for once and for all. Seemingly coincidentally, the writer had chosen a night that her mother was working night shift, so it would be easier for Legendre, whose curfew was 6.30pm, to sneak out of the house. On the night of the arranged meeting, Legendre snuck out of the house and made her way to the nearby park. She would later say that she'd sat there for a while and was getting ready to leave when she saw a tall, broad-shouldered figure enter the park wearing a hoodie. She was immediately on high alert because this man's build did not look like that of a teenage boy. Legendre sat rooted to the spot for a few minutes. The man said nothing to her, but a few meters from where she sat, he stopped and started to rummage in a plastic bag he was carrying. Legendre was suddenly terrified about what might come out of that bag, and she trusted her instincts and fled from the park. She was so terrified by the time she got home that she didn't worry about not making a noise coming up the stairs and woke her brother. Cheslin met his sister at her bedroom window as she came back in, and the young girl broke down and told her brother what had happened. The next morning, brother and sister told their mother about the event. Catherine looked over the letters and asked James if he knew anything about the situation, or if he'd perhaps heard Legendre come in the previous night. He said he knew nothing of it, and he hadn't heard a thing. Catherine warned her daughter to throw any new notes she received away, and not to engage with the person again. Legendre's best friend, Kaylin, would only find out about the anonymous letters and the midnight meeting in the park when it was too late to ask her friend any questions. In October 2014, the home in Weinberg was in a bit of turmoil. Catherine would tell Heskenuit magazine that she'd recently discovered that her partner James had been unfaithful and she'd asked him to move out. She says that his bags were packed and he was ready to leave during that time. Legendre and her brother had just finished the third term of school, and school holidays were upon them. Her older brother was in matric, and he would spend his school holidays attending summer school classes in preparation for his matric exams. Many of Legendre's friends that lived around her were going away for the holiday, and Legendre asked her mother if she could visit her cousins in North Pine for a change of scenery. Catherine agreed, and on the 7th of October 2014, when Catherine stuck her head into Legendre's room to say goodbye before going to work, she noticed with a smile that her daughter already had her bags packed for the trip, even though she was only leaving on the 8th. Catherine wished her daughter a good day and headed off for work followed soon after by Cheslin, who was attending his extra classes at school. We don't often want to think about the last time we'll see a person that we love. I think as human beings, we often convince ourselves that there will always be a tomorrow. If this podcast journey and all the families I've had the honor of engaging with has taught me anything, it's that tomorrow is never, ever guaranteed. And that today might just be the day that you think back to in 20, 30 or 40 years and wonder, what if? For Catherine Debrain, 
the 7th of October 2014, would be that day. Catherine was completing additional training for her job, and on the 7th of October, she would be at Grotesque Hospital a little longer than her normal workday. Cheslin arrived home between half past two and three in the afternoon and found the house empty. He knew his mother would be home later than usual that night, but by ten past seven at night when Legendre was not home, he called his mother. Catherine remembers how the boy had asked her whether she'd changed their curfew. When Catherine said she hadn't, he told her that Legendre was not home yet. He'd already gone to her closest friends in the street and found that his sister was not there. In fact, most of her friends had already left to go on their holidays. Kaylin's brother was home. He told Cheslin that he'd last seen Legendre earlier that day. He'd seen her walk outside with a load of washing and hang it up. Then she'd walked up the street. A while later she returned and she'd taken the washing down and gone into the house. That was the last time he saw her. The boy did say, though, that he heard some strange noises coming from the house after Legendre had returned. He heard what he later thought could be the muffled screams of a person, the way someone would sound if they were trying to scream while a hand was placed over their mouth. Then he heard a door slam. The only other thing he'd noticed which had been out of the ordinary, was that Catherine's partner James had parked his vehicle in the driveway by reversing it in, rather than driving in forward the way he usually did. By the time Catherine got home, her son had already checked out all of the immediate neighbours and everywhere he could on foot. Mother and son then set out to search further in her car. They checked the streets in town and even the public transport stations, even though Legendre had never used public transport because she was uncomfortable doing so. There was no sign of the girl. After almost two hours of searching, Catherine and Cheslin returned home and she called Legendre's dad, Warren, who arrived with his wife shortly afterwards. James Jonas had said that he'd seen Legendre while she was doing the washing earlier in the day, but then he'd gone out to get lawnmower parts and when he returned, she was gone. Catherine and Warren decided that they needed to report their daughter as missing. They knew that this was not normal behaviour for their child, and something had to be preventing her from returning home. Legendre had been so excited to visit her cousins the next day, and her packed suitcases still sat in her bedroom, exactly where her mother had seen them that morning. Legendre was also asthmatic, and she would never go anywhere without her asthma pump. Her pump was sitting on her bedside table. At the police station, Catherine says that the police officer on duty told her that it was very common for teenagers to go walkabout on the first day of the school holidays, and he was sure that by sunup the next day, Legendre would be home. Catherine and Warren did not agree and they felt that they weren't being taken seriously, but they agreed to return the next day if they still hadn't heard from their daughter. That night would be a long and sleepless one for the Debrain family, and I can just picture Catherine in the lounge of her home, peeking out of the curtains every time she heard a noise. 
Chaislin in his bedroom, trying to be strong for his mom. Warren in his own home across town, waiting for the phone to ring to let him know his baby girl was safely in her bed. The next day, the Debrains had posters made up and distributed them everywhere they could think of until 11am when they decided they were going back to the police. Catherine recalls walking into the police station and telling them what she'd been told the night before and saying that it was now long past sunrise on the following day and her daughter was still not home and she wanted to now open a missing persons case. This assumption from police that teenagers and young adults may have disappeared of their own accord is a common one, and if I'm honest, not completely unfair from their end. Many teenagers and young adults do go out with their friends and don't come home when they're supposed to, and I can understand the police not wanting to spend resources on such cases, but I think that when a person is under 18 at minimum, the parent's gut feeling needs to be taken into consideration. While parents don't always know what their teens are up to, and at that stage you're pretty good at hiding things, I feel like a parent that makes the effort to go to the police knows that their child does not ordinarily behave that way, and that has to count for something. The DeBrains were eventually able to open a missing persons case that day, and the Child Protection Unit were soon at their door to interview everyone close to Legendre. A tip came through that Legendre had been seen at the bus depot at 4pm on the day of her disappearance. This sighting could never be verified by police, and Legendre's fear of public transportation made it seem unlikely that this would have been her. Soon, the child protection units interviewed James Jonas, and they told him outright that they were concerned because he didn't seem very worried about the girl he'd helped to raise from the time she was seven years old. Catherine had also started to have her concerns in this regard. She too had noticed that James seemed entirely unconcerned about Legendre being missing. In fact, she says one of the only times he asked her about what was happening was to inquire whether she'd opened a case with the police. When she said that she had, he said, oh, okay. Another thing had started to niggle at her mind, and that was those notes that her daughter had been receiving. After her encounter in the park, the notes had stopped coming, which indicated that there was a good chance the person Legendre had seen in the park had been the sender of the letters. But that person had been a fully grown man, according to the girl, definitely not a teenager. In fact, she'd only been able to describe his build as being similar to James. Now, in all fairness, this on its own is not a red flag. It would be normal, I think, for any person to use those around them and the people they're familiar with to describe an unknown person. Catherine had been concerned enough, though, to attempt to compare the notes that she still had from her daughter's anonymous admirer to the receipt book that James used in his business. I asked Catherine if the police had ever taken those notes to compare them professionally to existing samples of James's writing, and she told me that when she went to retrieve them to hand them over to police, they disappeared. 
Sadly, this would not be the last mysterious disappearance in this case. Shortly after the CPU interviewed James, they informed Catherine and Warren that they were going to be handing Legendre's case over to the criminal investigators at the SAPS. While this did not bode well for a happy outcome in the case, at least the case was being investigated. James Jonas was asked to attend an interview with investigators shortly after the CPU had interviewed him. On the 23rd of October, he attended the interview without issue. His cell phone was confiscated by police for further investigation. When he returned to Catherine's home after the interview, he told her not to phone him on his cell phone because police had it. The next day, on the 24th of October, James did not return home. Not having a way to get hold of him, Catherine phoned everyone else that knew him, and no one had seen him. The following day, Catherine DeBrain had to go back to the police station to open yet another missing persons report, this time for her partner, James Jonas. On the program for Miss, Catherine tells Doreen Morris how she immediately noticed that the missing person flyer for James looked very different from Legendre's. His missing poster had the word wanted printed across the top, and in the body of the flyer, it detailed that James was wanted for questioning in regard to a criminal case. In the days that followed, James's car was found at the railway station near the DeBrain home. Inside was his firearm, which police would discover was not licensed. Catherine arranged for the car to be towed to a home, and police arrived the next day to search the vehicle. A scent detection dog was brought in, and the canine did not indicate on any area in the vehicle, except the driver's seat, where a streak of blood was found on the headrest. Forensic testing would later confirm that this blood belonged to James Jonas himself. Despite a thorough combing through of the vehicle by forensics teams, not a single trace of Legendre was found. This would be the last major movement on this case for many years to come. James Jonas simply disappeared into thin air, just as Legendre seemingly had. Her family would start a Facebook group called Bring Legendre de Brain Home, shortly after the girl disappeared. And as I scrolled through the group, it was like seeing a digital memorial for a girl who had neither been entirely lost nor ever found. It was Legendre's memory existing simply in the painful, unexplained limbo of all missing people, and her mother and other family members who admin the group would post on each of her birthdays, letting the girl know that they would never stop searching and that they were remembering her on her special day. As the months and then years crept by, Legendre's 16th, 17th and 18th birthdays were remembered with bittersweet memories. In 2017, when Legendre should have been celebrating her 18th birthday, a friend contacted Catherine to ask if she'd noticed that James Jonas's Facebook profile, which had lain dormant for three years since his disappearance, was suddenly active again. Catherine forwarded the information to police 
but they were unable to track the IP address he was posting from, and all of the photographs on his profile had the backgrounds manipulated, so there was nothing there that could be used to locate him. In 2018, Catherine and Cheslin had to euthanize Legendre's dog. She'd been very close to the dog, and Catherine describes having to part with the pet as one of the most difficult things she ever had to do. In a way, it felt like she was letting go of the last part of her daughter that she had left. Catherine and her family remembered Legendre's 20th birthday in the same way as previous years. Catherine says she had a secret hope that on Legendre's 21st birthday she would return home. But that day came and went without any such joyous occasion. 2020 did hold some hope of a different kind, though, when Real Epic Productions, the producers of the television series for Miss, made contact with the DeBrains. They'd heard about Legendre's case from private investigator Leon Rousseau, and they wanted to include her story in the first season of the programme. On the 27th of October, 2020, seven years and 20 days after the disappearance of Legendre de Brain, her story was watched in households across South Africa. When James Jonas's face was shown, at least one person recognised him, and in the days that followed, a lead would be handed over to Leon Rousseau, who then involved the SAPS. Shortly afterwards, James Jonas was arrested in Marcel Bay, where he appeared to have been living for the seven years since he disappeared from Weinberg. Jonas, although wanted for questioning in Legendre's case, was actually arrested on the outstanding firearm charge, resulting from the unlicensed gun police had found in his abandoned vehicle. He was transported back to Cape Town. For the Debrain family, this was the ultimate outcome of the trauma of having to tell their story again. Because as much as families of missing people want awareness for these cases, I don't think we always realise how much it takes out of them every single time they have to push their minds back to that time. Don't get me wrong, they've never forgotten. But with these survival techniques built into human beings, we find ways to cope and move forward. But every time they're forced to go back to that place in their memory, it becomes the equivalence of running an emotional marathon. But they continue to do the interviews and the television shows because it creates a tiny speck of hope. And when Catherine received a call that her ex-partner had been taken into custody, that tiny speck of hope started to bloom again. Sadly, the arrest seemed to come to naught, and on the 6th of November this year, the Argus published an article stating that James Jonas had been released without charge in Legendre's case. He'd allegedly paid an admission of guilt fine on the unlicensed gun charge, and then he'd been released. Unfortunately, Catherine de Brain had to find out about this from the journalist at the Argus. She was not contacted by police, and was informed that they hadn't found any conclusive evidence to tie him to her daughter's disappearance by the reporter. For Catherine, it is the silence from police that she's found to be one of the most difficult things to deal with. 
She says that even if there was no evidence to link him, she feels that she should have been contacted and advised that they'd reached a dead end at that point. I fully understand that police are not always able to share everything about a case with the family of the victim. Often there is sensitive information that if shared with people who are understandably emotionally distraught, may be leaked and permanently damage a case. But I don't think that letting a mother know that a person of interest in her child's case has been released could have in any way damaged the case. I think that for the families of the missing, so much feels out of their control, and they feel so utterly helpless, that empowering them even in the smallest of ways is helpful. I do want to make it very clear, before I get into any theories about this case, that James Jonas has never been identified by police as a suspect in Legendre's disappearance. He was a person of interest, because he may well have been the last one to see the girl, and also because of what police believed was suspicious behaviour from him at the time. There was no evidence to hold him on anything related to Legendre. I will admit that the timing of James's disappearance was strange, but there may well have been other explanations for that. The letters that Legendre received in the months before she disappeared are very concerning, and it certainly appears that an adult male with close connection to her was attempting to form a romantic relationship with the girl. I think that we could see these letters as a form of grooming, and perhaps when the communications came to light and Legendre showed her fear by running from the park, the writer of those letters took his plan a step further and abducted Legendre. Catherine recalled that at one stage a police officer had asked her whether it was possible that her daughter and James had actually run away together. I find this theory difficult to believe. Legendre and James's relationship had started to break down in the period before her disappearance. Legendre was 15 when she disappeared, and James was 41. Would this be an unbelievable relationship? Absolutely not. It certainly would not be the first time that an adult male had formed a relationship with a teenage girl. For me, though, it just doesn't fit. The letters, in my mind at least, cannot have been coincidental, and I really do feel like they are in some way linked to this case. If, as the policeman suggested, James and Legendre had run off together, where did the letters fit in? Although, statistically, most missing children have been made that way by someone close to them, the possibility that Legendre was abducted by a stranger who just happened to walk into her house that day does exist. It's a very slim chance, but it's there. I feel like we can say that Legendre did disappear from her house because of one small but very important clue, her asthma pump. If Legendre had disappeared intentionally of her own accord, there would have been no reason to leave that life-saving medication behind. For the families of the missing, it is the not knowing that is the worst part. It's the refrain I hear without fail from every single family. No matter what the reality is, they just want to know. 
and I know that the De Bruyne family is no different. There are limited possibilities around what may have happened that day to make a young girl who was still scared of the dark, didn't like using public transport, and always gave her friends logical reasons not to run away, to disappear. My gut tells me that Legendre did not disappear of her own accord, and that the answers to who made her disappear are closer than we think. In the past, when I've covered missing person cases, I've always made a plea to people to search their memories and consciences and come forward with any information they have. For a long time, I felt like I was just talking to myself. But recently, two people have come forward in missing person cases I've covered. They heard the podcast, and it twigged a memory for them. So now, I no longer feel like I'm wasting my breath when I say that if you're listening to this, and you think you may have information about this case, no matter how insignificant you think it may be, please contact the Weinberg Police. In May this year, Legendre Debrain would have turned 22 years old. She may have been attending nursing school to follow in her mother's footsteps. She may have been following a completely different dream. But instead of having any of those options, she's frozen in time. Forever 15 years old. And her family and friends are left with nothing but questions and memories that are sometimes too painful to hold on to. When I cover the cases of missing people, and I engage with the family, I often feel like I'm adopting the cause from that point on. I don't ever forget that that person is still missing, and I always try to stay in touch and regularly stay up to date with any new leads. And Legendre's case will be no different. I know that many listeners find unsolved cases frustrating and difficult to listen to. But cases like this are the whole reason this podcast exists. It is and should be the entire point of the true crime community. So although we may not be able to tie a pretty bow on Legendre's case and mark it solved, it doesn't have to be frustrating. The frustration will come when you do nothing about the information you now have. But if you make it your mission to have just two people listen to her story and have just another two see her missing person poster for the first time, then you've started a chain that may just lead to true resolution in this case. There is at least one person out there that doesn't want you to share Legendre's story and talk about her case. And that is the person that caused her to go missing. So how about we make it our mission to disappoint that one person and do the exact opposite? How about we make sure that people who've never heard Legendre's story before or seen her face do, so that that person, who just wants this all to go away, is never able to feel comfortable again? Looking at photographs of Legendre, she looks like a really spunky and full-of-life young woman. I have no doubt that if she could, her voice would be heard. Catherine, Warren and Cheslin have done their best since her disappearance to be her voice. 
and they've had help along the way from private investigators and the television program for Miss. Seven years ago, someone tried to take away Legendre's voice, and they probably thought they'd achieved that goal, but they hadn't bargained on the power of complete strangers who just won't let it go. If you have any information about the disappearance of Legendre de Brain, please contact the Weinberg SAPS on 021-799-1300. Thank you for listening to episode 64, The Disappearance of Legendre de Brain. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe on the platform you're using to listen right now. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. I'll be back next Friday with a Spotlight Minisode. Until then, as always, thank you for your support and I'll chat to you soon. Listener.